Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. And we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. You can visit our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. And we're brought to you today by the Capital Center for the Arts. The summer season is in full swing at the CCA. And soon, soon, I promise, we'll be back inside looking at wonderful performances at the Capital Center for the Arts. Visit their website, ccanh.org, to find out all about the news that's happening. So I uh, picked up the Boston Globe and uh, saw an interesting article. Data from the recent heat wave in New England reveal troubling trends. In New England's heat wave early this month, five days of 90 degree plus heat, the longest June heat wave in nearly a century, peak electricity demand from air conditioning put 36 million extra pounds of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The eye-popping numbers are not necessarily unexpected, but they highlight an alarming, alarming phenomenon at work as climate change makes periods of extreme heat more common and prolonged. The warming climate is leading us into a dangerous, vicious cycle. My two guests are here to talk with me today about climate change and energy policy in New Hampshire. Both have been involved in the battle to move New Hampshire forward on progressive energy policy for years. Uh, Senator David Waters was a classmate of mine many years ago at Dartmouth College and has now been a leader uh, on energy legislation in the state Senate. And Rob Werner is the executive director of the League of Conservation Voters in New Hampshire. Both of them are good friends and uh, have been on the front lines of energy in New Hampshire. Gentlemen, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Thanks, Paul. Well, thank you, Paul. It's good to be here and good to be with Rob, too. Yeah, you know, it, I, oh, it's I good to be with Senator Waters. It's well, it's it's and it's it's good to be with two people who care about the environment and understand the the energy policy in New Hampshire. Um, uh, sometimes I, I might say the lack of energy policy in New Hampshire, but there is energy policy um, in in New Hampshire. Um, I, I, I in preparation for today's show, I perused the Internet. I used I used the Googles and uh, and did an interesting exploration of some of the energy policy um, in the state. One of the things I noticed was that the state's um, renewable portfolio standard, the setting a standard for how much renewable energy should be produced in, in the state, looks like it was originated in 2007 or 2008 and stands at 25% uh, by 2035. Now, compared to lots of other states, and I didn't do a comprehensive examination of where a lot of other states are, but that seems like a pretty small amount of renewable energy uh, for 2035 as a goal for New Hampshire. What's the story? Why is that? Why hasn't it been updated? And, um, and, and why are we so far behind? Rob? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. You say that uh, you made note of the fact of lack of energy policy. We do have policy, but it's not particularly enlightened. And as you point out, it is putting New Hampshire well behind. As a matter of fact, if you have a graph, you look at a graph of the six New England states and look at their renewable portfolio standards, what you'll find is that New Hampshire's graph line is last and, and declining in relation to our neighbors. So we unfortunately have had a um, constellation of legislators and a governor who's not in harness these issues, we need to get to that situation to make progress. Uh, we certainly have had um, uh, environmental, pro-environmental majorities in the past, and some of the, sometimes they've been bipartisan. But uh, it is a it is a fact, as you point out, that we are uh, really woefully behind, and it's really going to cost our consumers money uh, because we're not investing in energy efficiency. I think it's. Uh, a, a phenomenon of very short-term thinking and this confusion about cost and rates and um, distribution of, of costs in relation to investments, which really can make a big difference on the front end. So um, you need to remedy this situation. Um, there's a lot of folks have been pushing hard, at least, you know, this year there was legislation to reduce our already very low renewable portfolio standard. That legislation has been retained, and that means that uh, we'll have to keep an eye on it as it comes back in January. But at least uh, we didn't have to deal with, with that this, this year. But I'm interested to see, uh, to hear what Senator Waters has to say, given the fact that he's been a, a longtime policymaker and legislator. David, let me just ask the if I, assuming I'm correct that that this standard was essentially set in 2007 or 2008, it would uh, make it a, a basically a bipartisan failure over the course of quite a a few years now, more than more than a decade to deal with that and raise it. Uh, during a time when we've had Democratic governors and a Democratic majority in our in our legislature, what's your perspective on that particular issue and the 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 lack of action on it over uh, the course of time? Is this a particularly particular New Hampshire reluctance to impose a government mandate? Um, is it? Um, is it a failure of imagination and concept uh, on the part of leaders like governors, including Democratic governors? Um, what's been what's what's your perspective on the uh, reluctance to to do something about that? Well, I th thanks for the question, Paul. And it is something that ultimately lies with the legislature because we do set policy. And I would take exception to the notion this has been a bipartisan failure because it was, after all, um, Democratic Governor Lynch who pushed for that standard and we got it through. And at that time, it was in accordance with what other states were doing. And by the time that it became obvious that we needed to really change that uh, standard and, and move it forward, uh, we were under the regime of of uh, Governor Sununu and uh, let, uh, and oftentimes Republican legislators uh, who would not move forward on this. And at this point, um, you know, sometimes they even have to 
change the numbers on the graphs or put an asterisk for New Hampshire because we fall so far behind on renewable energy. Most of the other states are moving towards uh, 50% very rapidly. Um, as your story at the beginning from the Boston Globe shows that we are facing a real crisis because of the changing environment and uh, the heat projections for New England are not good. It's a twofold problem. You have to increase efficiency and New Hampshire is a laggard in New England on that. That's why our share of the ISO New England um, charge for electricity transmission is going up because the states around us are through efficiency matters, decreasing the amount of electricity they use. And then second, we have to move to decarbonize and electrify um, our, our power su supply. Uh, and we've got to do that through renewable energy. Most of the states around us are moving towards 100% um, decarbonization, net zero on carbon by 2050. And New Hampshire uh, has really, as you said, the, the, the goals are have not been changed and they are um, very deficient. We've been unable in the last few legislative sessions to get any legislation passed to move us forward. Um, this has extreme consequences on New Hampshire in terms of cost, uh, but it also is a lost opportunity because that renewable energy is gonna come from wind and solar. And we have been dragging our feet, I mean, absolutely resistant to solar. We had some breakthroughs um, this session after hard negotiating, um, but we're kind of stalled in some ways on offshore wind, which has the potential for, you know, three to $5 billion construction in the Gulf of Maine just to get started and 12 to $16 billion in supply chain and tens of thousands of jobs that we could have in New Hampshire if we move forward on renewable energy. It's a complex problem, but I, I really think that it has it is because it is, is a Republican problem in the state of New Hampshire right now, and largely due to the dominance of uh, fossil fuel lobbies. So um, one there there are certainly um, some bright spots in the New Hampshire uh, energy picture. Um, uh, one of those might be, and I say might because I'll be interested in in the, your perspectives, uh, is that uh, there were in the state budget, um, which is um, uh, a terrible document given given a lot of what's in there um, on on lots of on lots of different issues, which uh, those of us who want to see the state move in an enlightened way are, are aghast about, and the governor says he's going to sign it, but we're not going to talk about those. But there is a apparently a state budget trailer that includes language to establish a Department of Energy that would govern energy and utility matters and allow uh, the Public Utilities Commission, the PUC, to, uh, as some people say, resume a strictly regulatory function. Um, uh, this is something that uh, I know some uh, uh, some folks concerned about energy have advocated uh, for years, um, and and I think people are hoping that a state energy department would be an advocate for setting more aggressive goals to reduce carbon emissions and um, somehow do something about moving us up from being last to at least maybe we could have a tie for last, which would be, would be, would be real progress. Um, I'm curious about your perspectives on where we are now in the regulatory policy framework 
and how a Department of Energy will or won't um, energize efforts to move us forward uh, on the critical matters that we've been discussing. Uh, David, why don't you start and then uh, and then Rob, uh, I'll be interested in your thoughts. Well, sure. And I strongly support the creation of the Department of Energy and have been working with the folks uh, creating that, that bill, offering advice. And I think we ended up in a very good place with that. This, after all, was the initiative of Democratic Representative uh, Bob Backus. He championed this, set up a commission, and the proposal largely follows what his commission recommended. It does some important things. It gathers together and I think uh, people who have been working on energy policy and gives an enhanced status uh, to that by bringing it up from the department level instead of having it be the Office of Strategic Initiatives and some other places that were performing these duties. And secondly, as you mentioned, it does do something very important with the Public Utilities Commission. There have been a sense that really the policymaking was being done in some ways by staff at the PUC, and that was not appropriate. They're supposed to be regulators, not policymakers. And so there is a kind of a bright line now there. And I was very concerned there'd be sufficient staffing there and the staffing was increased and that there was good language on creating that bright line between policy and regulation. And we got both of those into the bills and I, I think it's the way forward. On along the same track, however, um, right now we're in the process of creating our next 10-year energy plan. We have to do that, um, and th it's the time is now. And in fact, Senate Energy Committee on Tuesday at 11 o'clock is going to be having a hearing uh, and a presentation on that plan by uh, Mark Sanborn, who's been working on it in the Office of Strategic Initiatives. Um, I, uh, we will see what that plan looks like. Um, you know, given the history in the last couple of years, uh, I am kind of have my doubts about whether it will set the kind of priorities. If you look at the last 10 year plan, it didn't didn't really move us very aggressively forward. And um, so but it is an opportunity for public comment coming up on the 10 year energy plan. There will be opportunities for that to let people know. Um, and I think that'd be an important document. Um, you know, whatever one thinks about it in terms of your po political perspectives or, or so on, it is a state guideline. Um, it does provide an opportunity for looking very broadly at an energy plan in, in many different areas, you know, tra transportation, uh, heating, efficiency, um, helping low-income folks, um, renewable energy, many, many kinds of things will be in there. And now we do have the Department of Energy. And, you know, whichever party is control, whoever is governor, um, that's an important institutional uh, arena for all who are interested in energy policy to, to work and have good expertise there. So actually, I'm, I'm quite hopeful about that. Let me just follow, follow up quickly. So the, the new 10-year energy plan um, comes out of the Governor's Office of Strategic Initiatives. Am I correct? Yes. And that's where Mr. Sanborn works? Yes. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was last updated in 2018. Right. Right. And so this is a report or strategy which would when the new Department of Energy gets up and running, they they would that department would then take control of dealing with or implementing the strategy. Well, from from the ex executive branch perspective, and then it certainly will be a good guide for people in the legislative branch who want to introduce legislation to 
either implement some of the proposals in the 10-year energy plan or, frankly, to set its own policy. I see. So, so Rob, from your perspective, um, uh, what are you thinking about this new Department of Energy? Will it coalesce action? Will it be a way to focus efforts on moving us forward on, on energy? Or is it just shuffling deck chairs? No, I think it's far more than shuffling deck chairs. I'm actually happy to see it. And many of my colleagues in the environmental community have been advocating for this for quite a long time. Senator Waters had, had indicated. I do think it is a significant improvement to have a commissioner level um, department, you know, attention to these particular issues, to these collection of issues, I think creates a better path of accountability um, in state government, um, have that kind of leadership. Now, of course, um, personnel is policy. So that is going to be sort of the, the, the true test in terms of what kind of folks are actually populating this agency, uh, uh, this department and making, uh, making policy. I do think that um, I'm happy to see the improvements made with uh, relative to the PUC because as we've seen very recently, I believe a lot, a lot of us are of, of the view that the PUC has become under some political pressure from the legislature, particularly around energy efficiency programs uh, and the lack of uh, a, approval of the uh, triennial energy efficiency program that's currently before them. So we're very hopeful this summer that that can get resolved. Um, but I do think the clarification that is in the, uh, the uh, budget around the Department of Energy is um, very positive around the PUC and, and positive Overall, um, relative to the 10-year energy plan, uh, the, the current plan is not, uh, not particularly cohesive and it's, it's uh, the policies it puts forward in terms of a strategy, in my view. My expectations are fairly low about what is coming out of OSI in terms of uh, energy efficiency uh, or, or, uh, or energy plan over the, over the next 10-year view as to what's really needed to, to move us forward and uh, to really be part of a, a regional um, uh, energy program and uh, in collaboration. So. Is that because of the, the people involved in creating the plan? Is it because of well, ideology? Largely, yes. I mean, again, you know, uh, personnel is policy. We all, we all know that. And uh, I think that has followed through in this case. So uh, let me just go back to something you said about the, the PUC. Um, you know, to, to most, um, most consumers, most people who are paying their electric bills, um, they don't think on a day-to-day -day basis about how the Public Utilities Commission is or is not uh, affecting, affecting their lives. Um, you know, New Hampshire has uh, is getting its um, it's getting its electricity from a mix of oil and and gas and um, uh, mo mostly um, the renewables are a tiny tiny part of the New Hampshire portfolio, especially in comparison to um, many other states. Um, and I'm interested in what you said about the PUC's recent role that you said looked like it might be getting political with respect to approving or disapproving uh, a plan. Could you just expand uh, briefly for us about what that, what that, in, what that involves? 
Well, sure. I think you'll recall that early in this current legislative session, there was a letter that was sent um, to the PUC by the leadership of the Republican leadership of the Science, Tech, and Energy Committee in the House advocating that the energy efficiency program, the triennial program that would be this three-year period that uh, all parties agreed to in terms of additional and a very significant increase in energy efficiency funding, um, that that had been agreed to and um, ostensibly because of, of the impact of COVID on the economy, the argument was, well, we shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be doing that at this time because it involves a, a, a relatively small increase in the system's benefit charge, which we all pay on our electric bills, which in turn funds these energy efficiency programs. But it really belies the argument that we all know is true and proven that investments on the front end around energy efficiency are far more valuable than the relatively small charges that consumers see on their electric bills, it does make make a difference. So that's what I mean by um, the politicization of uh, of the PUC. I think the, the there are certain legislators who um, have really never supported investments in energy efficiency, and and they took an opportunity to, I think, make that policy policy preference clear. But I'm hoping that that at the end at the end of the day, that's not gonna not gonna carry out. So, uh, in just uh, this is kind of a lightning round question. Uh, David, um, do you think that with the Department of Energy, some of that kind of political pressure, which uh, appears to have been at work on PUC in this case, um, might be mitigated? Well, I mean, and, I, I, and, and it's really I, 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 I don't know. I think that is. Um... Rob said that, uh, of course, the PUC commissioners are appointed by the governor. And um, so certain perspectives and interests by the commissioners may there, be there. But I'm very process oriented. It's an adjudicative process. And uh, so I remain hopeful in the system itself that, uh, you know, with clarification from the legislature, then, um, you know, through the creation of the Department of Energy about how the PUC functions, then, then yes, you know, we have to let the system work and function. And I, I hope that this issue about the energy efficiency gets resolved quickly. So we've been talking about energy policy in the state. Um, it's kind of like a Clint Eastwood movie, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, here's a good thing that I want to talk about uh, in case our listeners have missed it. And, you know, frankly, it may be that a lot of listeners don't think this deeply about energy policy. Some do, but many don't. Um, the issue of net metering uh, and what has uh, been uh, the one step forward, two steps back approach in New Hampshire has uh, been something that I've always I've been concerned about for a long time. Recently, there's been some progress that may be a harbinger of significant progress on energy policy for New Hampshire. Um, and that involves um, action around allowing municipalities to uh, do better on renewable energy. And there appear to be two big developments, one from a few years ago that was confirmed by the legislature, allowing uh, a community power approach uh, to for municipalities. And in this session, 
it looks like the amount of energy that municipalities can now um, uh, uh, obtain from uh, renewable sources has been increased. Uh, David, could you take us through uh, what that's about, where we are, and what you think it means? Well, this is great news. As you said, um, we have been struggling to move forward on net metering, which really is about the rate of transmission charges that people who are producing locally amounts of energy uh, now up to five megawatts for municipalities from solar or hydro or other sources. And, you know, is the arrangement with the utilities for transmission at a rate that enables this investment to go forward? And, you know, a lot of tough negotiation. I, I you know, kudos to uh, Center Science, Technology and Energy Committee and the House Chairman, uh, Chairman Representative Vose and uh, Senator Avar and Senator Bradley and uh, and others and you know my own bill working as I was the lead sponsor on the bill that included this section and um, this was a great thing to do. What we are saying now is you know the governor had vetoed increasing net metering up to five megawatts and I, I tell you most states have done that a long time ago where they don't have any limits at all but here we are um, and he vetoed bills on that couple of times but now now we there's willingness from the governor and i appreciate that to move forward for municipalities to do these projects up to five megawatts this will have a huge impact london dairy has a great project ready to go which required this change dover summersworth really around the around the state um there's going to be a lot of investment and we're going to save taxpayers a lot of money because municipalities can get good part of their um, electric electricity needs from this but it is linked to two other things that you you know that you've mentioned. One of them, um, the aggregation of um, electricity customers. So a municipality could aggregate everybody who's buying electricity and then negotiate for better prices. Good thing to do. And then thirdly, we have energy storage. I've been working for several years on this. Representative Oxenham in the House for several years, and we got a really good uh, piece of legislation finally passed um, that clarifies that energy storage, uh, electricity from energy storage is not generation. So it doesn't trip that wire of decoupling generation and, and transmission. And this means that electric electricity storage, you talk about shaving peak demands about the, the air conditioning and the heat we've had in the, the heat wave or with um, the coming of large scale solar and also with offshore wind. Uh, storage is a big piece of that. So we, you know, we really, really hard negotiating, um, but that's what we're supposed to do. And we came up with really, really good uh, legislation this time. So Rob, would you unpack for us a little bit the 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 business, just the 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 business of net metering and why the governor has been at least as far as you know, or can tell, can tell us why he's been reluctant to allow an increase in the overall net metering limit, why um, the municipal net metering uh, bill uh, was more, was, was seen more favorably by the governor, um, and, and how things might work in the future um, now that the municipalities can um, have, have raised the net metering cap from one to five megawatts? Sure. Um, so um, in addition to municipalities, school districts, counties uh, will also be able to take advantage of 
building larger projects, which is really important in terms of economies of scale and cost. So that's a big step forward. As far as the reluctance to extend net metering across the board, um, I think that there's a misplaced um, uh, perception or opinion about well, the concept of cost shifting, that large scale development of solar projects across the board with all entities was somehow going to shift the cost uh, unequally onto consumers and add millions upon millions of dollars uh, to our energy costs. Now, the interesting thing is, I also serve as a city councilor in Concord, and we are used to dealing with uh, budgets and uh, what are called pro formas, meaning what's your spreadsheet? Tell me exactly how you're going to get to X number. How, how do you develop that? The fact of the matter is, a lot of us have been asking, well, how do you come up with these numbers with the administration? Tell us exactly how you arrive at that. This has never been produced. So um, I think it's become unfortunately very political, um, but um, that I think that's part of the answer um, in terms of an ideology around energy generation. And again, sort of the misplaced aspects of, of cost and rates and what that what those effects would be. But nonetheless, we, we do find ourselves in a very positive situation now with net metering, in my view. So David's exactly right. Um, there'll be a lot of uh, entities, school districts, municipalities around the state poised to build very large projects up to five megawatts. In Concord, we've been looking at putting a five megawatt system on our cap landfill. Uh, and then there are other projects that we can pursue within the city to get to the point of having our city operations 100% offloaded to a homegrown solar facility, or maybe some small hydro could play a role as well, because we do have that in Pentecook, uh, to get to a situation where all of our uh, electric load for the city operations are produced by homegrown renewable energy. So I do see that, that path now. And the, the policy uh, of net metering increasing it is very important to those uh, cities like Concord and others that have made these 100% renewable energy goals. Uh, it's really an important building block to, to get there, to, to be able to do these things. Yeah. And Paul, if I could just add in there that I mentioned that the bills that we just passed include uh, a commission to look at this issue and a, recommend, a, a requirement that the PUC uh, look into as well, whether or not there is substantial cost shifting. And the breakthrough this time was to find some language which would specify that the PUC should min minimize any cost shifting there is. The question has been whether or not potential cost shifting because you're favoring you know, letting some folks to use the transmission lines at a little less price than others might, does that cost of the transmission lines get shifted? And the counter argument had been, but wait a minute, with renewable energy, we reduce the amount of power that's being transmitted over those lines, and that will cut the amount that we're charged from the ISO New England for transmission and make that basically a wash. Um, it's, a, it's a tough question and we'll get some answers on that and I think they'll be positive and um, then we'll be able to potentially to move forward much more aggressively with net metering in the future. 
So the one thing I, I, I just want some help understanding with the increase of the net metering cap from one to five megawatts and just dealing with that cap and, and its increase, uh, this would allow a municipality like Concord, which has municipal buildings, it has a wastewater treatment plant, there's a uh, transfer station, um, there are other city facilities I may not be meet be thinking about. And it would allow Concord, say, to put a put a solar array on its landfill. And let's just say that was a five megawatt solar array. Uh, up until this legislation, uh, there would only have been allowed a one megawatt solar array um, to power the municipal facilities. So would all the power under this cap be directed by the municipality to municipal buildings and municipal facilities as opposed to residential uh, customers and does the and and is there something now on the books that that gives some hope for lower electricity costs through renewable energy for the residential uh, customers in a municipality and is that what community power is about gentlemen help me unpack that and help our listeners understand what's going on well, Senator Avard, actually, to his credit, when he, uh, I thought his testimony that he delivered on his standalone net metering bill, he made it very clear that he, his hope was that this um, municipal governmental entity aspect of net metering would really be the beginning, that it would prove itself uh, through these projects in terms of cost and viability and so forth, and that we could then move on to what many of us have advocated for many years in terms of a much broader aspect of, of net metering. So let me, let me give you a quick uh, thumbnail on Concord. So our electric load for all of our buildings um, is about seven and a half megawatts, somewhere in there. So we can build a five megawatt system on the landfill and then build other systems, whether that's through small hydro, manage of that or other solar facilities throughout the city. Our goal is to completely offset that seven and a half megawatts or so to homegrown uh, electric generation, uh, which would be a big and necessary accomplishment, as I said, in terms of our 100% renewable energy goal. So that's really kind of what we're limited to at this point. But I do want to emphasize that it is, it is a very significant policy shift, particularly in the context of what we've been trying to do over the last few sessions. And I think it is going to make a, a big difference and set us on the path for larger expansion of the policy going forward, I hope. So David, is there a difference between this um, five megawatt aggregation and the community power uh, coalitions um, uh, formation allowing municipalities to uh, help their residents opt into buying renewable energy? Well, they are different in a way in that um, there, are, there are programs. Um, the group solar program that Senator Feldes championed are really directed towards helping low-income folks. And there are other statutes. Uh, and as Rob was mentioning, the Energy Efficiency Fund program that are directed specifically towards low-income uh, low folks. And it's not just the energy supply, but it's also 
money to improve their energy efficiency through insulating or replacement of old equipment and, and so on. Um, so those programs are, are there, and then I believe it'd be up to the municipality to decide how it wants to use its power. And uh, I suspect some communities like Lebanon, for example, might be interested in um, trying to find ways particularly to help lower income folks benefit from uh, community solar. And, and answer to your other question, I believe that there are some provisions on whereby the PUC can regulate and approve some of this um, community uh, power that's being produced under the um, five megawatt limit to go onto the wholesale market um, because you know you do need to move power around. Uh, sometimes you're not using it all. Sometimes you're using more than you you produce. Um, but this is you know this is what it's a learning curve is how this will work. But the key point that Rob mentioned is that once you get up to five megawatts, it becomes economically feasible. Uh, at one megawatt, projects in Summersworth, for example, could not go forward because the investors say, look, you need two megawatts to make this, the numbers really work uh, for, for you. So this, um, this is really important for bringing that money in and bringing you know, job growth to New Hampshire. This, this industry is going to be, is, is booming. And, the, and the, the job growth that we're going to see in renewable energy production is a good, good well-paying jobs. And um, that's, that's important uh, as well. So yeah, let's not forget that this is also uh, an economic development opportunity for communities, as, as David had pointed out. Um, it's going to help control energy costs, but it's also going to produce investments, large-scale investment, and, and certainly create clean energy jobs. So that's all of the benefit. Yeah, I, I know a little bit about it. I'm, I'm, now, I'm now in the business. Um, and I've talked to folks in Summersworth recently. I've talked to folks in Concord about uh, what, what my, my folks are, are working on. And so it's, it's very exciting. One, one uh, component uh, in the arsenal of renewable energy that we haven't talked about, and I was interested that um, neither of my expert guests mentioned it, is the waste to energy, uh, the world of waste to energy, which is um, uh, in which there's been a lot of development of uh, technology. And uh, some of that um, has happened right here in New Hampshire. Um, for example, um, uh, the University of New Hampshire is now receiving 85% of its electric electricity and heat from purified methane gas collected from a nearby landfill in a program um, uh, that I think they're working on together with waste, um, waste management company, one of New Hampshire's um, big uh, energy companies that um, has been doing some work in waste to energy. Um, it seems to me that uh, waste to energy has promised that uh, there are various methodologies um, for uh, waste to energy, including um, uh, taking the methane gas off lots of the capped landfills in New Hampshire, as the U as UNH is doing, uh, which is pretty startling. And uh, I will just say that in New Hampshire, there is a small innovation company called Criare, C-R-E-A-R-E. -E, and they are working with the uh, Navy now on a new system uh, that is basically plasma arc um, pyrolysis, 
um, something I'm also significantly interested in, to uh, help power uh, Navy ships by a small, efficient waste energy uh, furnace that burns hotter than the sun at 10,000 degrees Celsius. Uh, what's your perspective on the future of waste to energy and how it, how, it, how it could be incorporated into the landscape in New Hampshire? Well, I, you know, having been teaching, I taught at UNH during the time that that uh, pipeline project and the plant up there, um, waste management, the turnkey landfill was created. And it's, it's been a great example for what can be done. And I think there is potential. I, I know that uh, Casella and waste management are interested in uh, doing more of this. It's good because of the energy production, but also what we know about methane as a you know real accelerator of global warming. It's much worse than other kinds of car other carbon emissions. Um, that this is really an, an important uh, prospect, but it is going to be kind of limited, Paul. Uh, and so the big players in renewable energy, they just it has to be solar to a degree, um, but it's going to be offshore wind. Um, you know, you mentioned our power sources in New Hampshire and didn't mention it. 45% of our power is coming from Seabrook. Uh, Seabrook has its licensing renewed, but it, it, you know, 2045, it's done. And uh, this is why we really need to be sure that we have our offshore wind production in multiple, multiple gigawatts, maybe up to 11 gigawatts in the Gulf of Maine, perhaps 13 or maybe more um, on other in, in other areas. I mean, Massachusetts alone, his portfolio needs to get 11 gigawatts of off, of uh, renewable energy to meet its goals for just that one one state. So um, that that's really what the, the all that that's the, the that's where the eyes and the prize ought to be, and what we're going to do to move offshore wind forward. Um, I had my bill, Senate Bill 151, which showed a path of how we get there for New Hampshire. Um, we've done some work through capital budget and some federal grants to improve the Port of Portsmouth facilities. We have huge potential there, and I just um, hope that we're not letting it slip through our fingers. Rob, I'm going to give you the last 40 seconds. Okay, well, echo Senator Waters. Offshore wind is the biggest lever we have for renewable energy, and it will be a tremendous job creator, economic development, investment opportunity as well, we're very excited that the Vineyard Wind Project has received final approval and we should see generation from that project in 2013, um, I mean, 2023 rather. So, um, you know, that's really gonna show people that this is a real thing, it's coming and that we need to, we need to take advantage of it and really jump on this opportunity in a very big and significant way. Well, I wanna thank you both. This is Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. Uh, Rob Werner of the League of Conservation Voters and Senator David Waters, a champion for smart energy policy. Uh, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Paul. So, folks, we are uh, going to see you next week with another exciting edition of Capital Close-Up. Check out our podcasts at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Become a fan, subscribe, and like us because we like you. We'll see you next week.